A respectfully somber welcome to the weekly edition of ESG Now, where we cover how the environment, our society, and corporate governance affects and is affected by our economy. I'm your host, Mike DeCevedo, and this week we are going to focus on the dams that broke in central Michigan in the U.S. that now threaten a Dow chemical complex in the community and a super fun cleanup site that is Dow's responsibility. Thanks as always for joining us. Stay tuned. So two dams have broke in central Michigan, which for all my non-U.S. listeners out there is this Midwestern state that's shaped like a glove. And they have it in a town called Midland where there was two days of historic rainfall. And so when the two dams breached, the community was flooded. And within the community is this sprawling Dow chemical complex that has these quote-unquote toxic contaminant pools, which are actually tailings dams. We're going to get into that soon. So the flood water has gotten into those contaminant pools and things are getting a bit dicey. There's a possibility that they might overthrow, overflow, but we don't know yet if that's going to happen. And it's just kind of an all around bad example of what can happen with physical risk. Not only that, There is what's called the Superfund site, and I'm going to explain what that is in the episode downstream of the century-old Dow facility, and that's actually a riverbed that is replete with carcinogenic materials. And so we have to answer a couple ESG questions in this story, and first is about disclosure. How much investors or companies can really know about the possibility of a disaster like this when it's caused by climate change? And then there is the broader question about disclosure. How should investors be aware of the possibility of such disasters like the one at Dow? And with me today to answer these questions are my colleagues Jillian Malad and Cyrus Latvipur because Jillian just wrote about the Dow disaster for us recently and Cyrus is the guru of company disclosure. So Cyrus, that's kind of what I wanted to start off with first. Um, How are companies disclosing about how they're adapting to the climate crisis and what is now considered normal? Well, I think one of the key challenges that investors face and also you know, research providers like us is access to that company level specific information that tells us specifically that a facility is at risk. Right now, it's completely unrealistic that that happens on a systematic basis, let alone even on a company specific basis. Um, so I think one way we get around that is actually looking through these alternative sources of data. Um, Dow Chemical may not specifically disclose to us that in their 10K filing that this tailings pond as a part of their Midland plant is classified as high risk by the Army Corps of Engineers. Um, but what we can do is actually extract that information from the public database itself. So while these companies aren't necessarily you know, uniformly disclosing these risks, there are ways to get around that. Um, but we have also seen companies increasingly disclose risks Uh, about climate change more broadly. So weather-related hazards, climate-related hazards, um, specifically related to flooding and extreme weather. Um, We've seen that increase for certain industries over the last four years. Now, when we just look at mentions of flooding in 10K filings, um, but it's nowhere near the level that you would expect. Why not just disclose? I mean, if they're doing something about it, as it seems Dow was at least attempting to do something about it, and and weather events happens and they've disclosed, then they don't get as much backlash. So why not do it? 
Well, I think that comes down to the what's perceived as a risk. So, I mean, the material risk factor sections of a 10K filing are highly standardized. There's sometimes boilerplate language used, and there's a high threshold for what's characterized as being material. Um, now, I think that what is classified as material is that goalpost is shifting um, as I think more uh, more evidence emerges around climate-related risks and weather-related risks in particular. Um, but we do recognize that there is a there is growing momentum, at least, in terms of disclosing those factors. But disclosing them as risk factors and disclosing the information that investors need to judge the risk for themselves is a completely different matter. What? Uh, how do you mean? So, for example, a chemical company may disclose that they have facilities uh, located in regions that are prone to extreme weather events like hurricanes. Um, but are they actually providing that information to investors and research providers that says, what are their mitigation efforts to guard against those extreme weather events? Um, what exactly is exposed about those facilities and how many facilities and to what extent of their total profit is derived from those facilities? Um, those are all pieces of missing information that you won't necessarily find disclosed in material risk factors. By Zeus! But, I mean, the thing is that FEMA, which is the Federal Emergency Management Agency that maps all this stuff, their flood maps were mapped in 1979, and according to Michael Keller or Bloomberg News, around 58% of those maps are inaccurate or out of date. And regardless, they don't depict future conditions. These FEMA maps are backwards looking in time. And most, if not all, climate scientists agree that the climate is changing so quickly that their models cannot even keep up with it. And this is this really isn't topical for the dam breaking in Michigan, but FEMA doesn't really take into account sea level rise in their data or in their risk assessments. And, and listen to all that, and let me quote something from a New York Times article in 2018. Quote, anchored in flood-prone areas in every American state are more than 2,500 sites that handle toxic chemicals, a New York Times analysis of federal floodplain and industrial data shows. So that's a, a lot of risk that is very difficult to see with outdated maps. And I think it's fair to say that there's a data availability problem for companies that operate in these increasingly high-risk areas. So I, th I think one, so we looked at this at the, um, in the annual ratings consultation when we actually consulted with the clients on the potential integration of physical risk factors in the ESG ratings model. And one thing we, we did to kind of set the stage was to actually look at what companies are disclosing in their 10Ks and how they're disclosing it. And one of the things we looked at was these search terms related to floods, hurricanes, extreme weather, and sea level rise. So if you look at the utility sector in particular, that was one where we saw the greatest momentum in companies disclosing some risk factor related to extreme weather. Now, part of that may be attributed to, you know, large one-off events as well, too, like a PG&E occurring. Um, maybe this Dow chemical dam bursting is that PG&E-like event that does trigger more disclosures and more investor demands for greater transparency around these types of risks. For all those unawares, PG&E is the San Francisco-based utility whose transmission lines were found to have caused the deadliest and most destructive wildfire on record in California with an all-too-calm name of the campfire of 2018. And actually, state regulators found PG&E knew about its infrastructure problems and did nothing about it. So, Jillian, could you tell me about these toxic waste pools at the Dow facility? Because there's a little more about them than the name suggests, right? Um, so, the contaminant ponds are considered tailings dams or waste sites where essentially the 
the um, after the manufacturing process goes on, like the waste materials are kept inside the containment ponds. And um, those two ponds that were uh, that mixed with the floodwaters, um, they're both considered high hazard potential dams, according to the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers. And what goes into that designation is basically if the dam can cause um, a lot of damage to either the area, the surrounding area or to the communities. And it's likely that they actually applied for it. And one way that you apply for it is by having a emergency management plan in place. And it's clear that they had an emergency management plan in place because um, as soon as the floods happened, they closed down all operations at the plant. And they, the only things that they left open was the um, emergency operations to control chemical contaminants. And so the Dow Chemical Company facility in Midland, it began operating in 1897. It had produced over a thousand different organic and inorganic chemicals. And there's these things called dioxins and furans that were byproducts formed during the manufacture of these chlorine-based products that they started doing in the early 1900s. And so what happened was the EPA, they started to find elevated dioxin levels in and along the Titipawasi River and downstream. And they decided it appeared to be attributable to the particles and liquid wastes that were discharged by the Dow facility. And so the EPA said, okay, we're going to mark these 50 miles downstream from your facility as a Superfund site. And a Superfund site, I'm not going to go into the detailed history, but it's basically a site that requires a long-term cleanup response because there's hazardous material contaminations. And regulators say, Company X, you are probably the cause of this, so you have to deal with it. You have to clean it up, and it takes decades to clean up. And that's what is 50 miles from the Dow facility, and that's what is now being threatened by some of these floodwaters. This is something where... Each year on, in their annual report, they uh, disclose the amount of money that they pay towards uh, cleaning up the Superfund site. Um, and they have another plant. I'm sorry, it's not a plant, but it's just a Superfund site that they're responsible for in, uh, in New Jersey. And in their annual report, they mention that the two Superfund sites that um, they have the most, uh, the highest remediation costs at each year are the Midland Superfund site and the uh, the one in, in New Jersey. Um, and coincidentally, both of those Superfund sites are in FEMA-designated high flood hazard hazard zones. Um, and, you know, one, one of the things also that, um, that I um, became aware of when I was doing research is that these dams which were breached are um, older, older infrastructure. And so it's the combination of older infrastructure, uh, a FEMA flood risk zone, and, um, you know, contaminant, contaminated site, a Superfund site, and the tailings dams, which these ponds are considered tailings dams or waste sites. All of those together puts this site at risk. I mean, that's also a really good point. According to the National Inventory of Dams, uh, roughly 90,000 dams in the United States are older than their design life of 50 years. 25,000 dams are considered high or significant hazards if they failed, such as the situation that's now happened in Midland, Michigan. And I want to be clear about this. Dow did not have any cause in these dams failing. It was because of the historic floods and the historic rainfall that happened in the area. So Dow is not technically responsible for ensuring that the dams that are upstream 
are actually kept up to date. That's a responsible. That's a responsibility of regulators. Um, Cyrus, it seems like companies are going to walk into these sorts of threats if they have a facility that's located in this area, but also even if they acquire a company that is operating in an area like this, such as when Bayer acquired Monsanto and all of a sudden Bayer had to worry about pesticide litigation. And Cyrus, you were actually telling me about a company that this is happening to right now in South Africa called Sasol. And I was wondering if you could kind of take me through what that company is now dealing with due to climate hazards it acquired. So this is a, another very large chemical company, South African-based chemical company, um, is has uh, started on a strategy to pivot away from its very coal-intensive uh, production process in South Africa to a more natural gas-based production process that's leveraging the U.S. natural gas supplies. And so part of that strategy is this Keystone project in um, uh, Lake Charles, Louisiana. And this project started out, I think, in 2014. You might need to fact check me on that. And it was originally a very large project, a $6 billion integrated chemical complex. And over the years, the project got more and more delayed. Um, Hurricane Harvey came along, uh, resulted in another $100 million costs uh, and additional delays in the project, ballooned to an $8 billion project. total project and then to an $11 billion total project. And now it sits at a $12.9 billion project. So the project has been totally swamped with delays, um, cost overruns. But I think on top of all of that, while the company is trying to transition away from a coal-heavy feedstock to a more natural gas, somewhat climate-friendlier feedstock to produce chemicals, um, it's also taking on all this additional physical risk in the form of this chemical complex. Because the one thing I think that a lot of investors are somewhat discounting here is the fact that this chemical plant overlaps with a special flood hazard zone, meaning that part of this plant has a 1% annual chance of being inundated. And in a hurricane um, prone region like Louisiana, um, those risks are even more um, exacerbated. Um, And in the chemicals industry in particular, I mean, a lot of the growth is happening on the U.S. Gulf Coast, which I probably don't need to mention is prone to hurricanes. So as the climate crisis continues to accelerate, for example, the National Centers for Environmental Information, or NOAA, predicts 2020 will be the worst year yet for severe storms in the U.S. Do you think disclosure, company disclosures, 10Ks, those things will evolve along with our climate? Will there be a change in disclosures? I think, I mean... Generally speaking, we expect that there will be a significant change in disclosures, particularly regarding climate risks. And that's largely going to be driven by uh, TCFD and regulations and investor demands. Now, in terms of whether or not that's the information that allows us to adequately judge whether or not a facility is adequately prepared to manage events like this, that's still somewhat up in the air. But I think if history is kind of any gives us any guide for what the future holds. Um, The trends that we've seen have been showing that more companies are disclosing these uh, physical climate risks as material risks for investors, but it's still somewhat up in the air as as to whether or not those actual disclosures are going to satisfy the information requirements of investors.
And that's it for the week. I wanted to thank Jillian and Cyrus for joining me to discuss this week's news with an ESG twist. I want to thank you so much for listening to us. As always, if you like what you heard, don't forget to rate and review us. It always helps me out as I'm trying to grow and learn and be better. And don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Have a great rest of the week, and I will talk to you soon. The MSCI ESG Research Podcast is provided by MSCI Inc.'s subsidiary, MSCI ESG Research LLC, a registered investment advisor under the Investment Advisors Act of 1940. And this recording and data mentioned herein has not been submitted to nor received approval from the United States Securities and Exchange Commission or any other regulatory body. The analysis discussed should not be taken as an indication or guarantee of any future performance, analysis, forecast, or prediction. The information contained in this recording is not for reproduction in whole or in part without prior written permission from MSCI ESG Research. None of the discussion or analysis put forth in this recording constitutes an offer to buy or sell or a promotion or recommendation of any security, financial instrument, or product or trading strategy. Further, none of the information is intended to constitute investment advice or recommendation to make or refrain from making any kind of investment decision and may not be relied on as such. The information provided here is as is, and the user of the information assumes the entire risk of any use it may make or permit to be made of the information. Thank you.